Hello and welcome to How To Money, a financial education podcast for young Australians aimed at opening up the conversation around money. In each episode, your host, Kate Campbell, brings in a variety of guests to explore everything from buying shares to starting your own business, all with the aim of kickstarting your personal finance journey. Just a quick reminder that everything we cover in this podcast is for financial education purposes only, and we are not giving you any advice. If you do want advice, please seek the help of a qualified and competent professional and do some research. Remember, it's your money, so take control. Tanya Hester, welcome to the How To Money podcast. Thanks so much for having me. Wonderful to have you here all the way from the United States, and you're very well known over there for your thought leadership in sort of the financial independence movement, and you've written a book, and you've got another one on the way. For any of my listeners that are new to you and your work, haven't come across your blog before, could you share a little bit about yourself and um, maybe some of the ideas that you're popular for in the United States? Sure. So I'm Tanya Hester. I live in California, although up in the mountains where it's cold and currently snowing. And (laughs) I, in personal finance, am best known, as you said, for writing about financial independence and what I would call work optional living uh, or work optional options. And that was my first book. But I think going back farther, I'm certainly someone who has always tried to work on changing the status quo, pushing back against things that seem unjust, working toward better environmental solutions. And I spent a 16-year career doing just that, working as a political consultant here in the U.S. And that involved working for candidates, working on causes, sometimes working for people like foundations or nonprofit organizations, working toward different ways to change the status quo and helping them be effective in their work. Before that, I was a journalist. And so I think the new book, Wallet Activism, is really going back to my roots more or less. You know, it's it's less about financial independence and more about how we can all use our financial choices to express our values in the world and to change status quos that need changing. Mm. And it's really interesting because I first got interested in the idea of financial independence about five or six years ago now. And Even I have found my ideas have changed quite a lot along the way and I'm not sort of interested in that end goal as much anymore because I'm kind of set up in a way that I'll get there eventually. But I'm really interested in the ideas of what I can actually do with my money at this current time. And I know you've written a little bit about how your ideas on the the financial independence movement have changed over the years, if you'd be happy to share some of those. Sure. Gosh, I really could go in any number of directions, but I think that the there are several things that come to mind. You know, when I first started writing about fire, which I think was probably six or seven years ago, I've lost a bit of track. Um, this is what happens when we get older. But back then, I think a lot of the conversation really tried hard to be totally devoid of anything that could feel vaguely political, which in the U.S., as I'm sure your listeners know, we don't have public health care. And so even just talking about how you would pay for healthcare when you're not working in a job, which in the U.S., most people get health insurance through their job, people would accuse you of being political. And so I tried to stay away from that stuff. And I think over time, I realized that there was so much we were leaving out of the conversation in attempting not to be political. And it meant we couldn't talk about the fact that so much of the movement was tailored toward white male tech workers, you know, and not being especially inclusive to people of color or women or LGBTQ plus families or any other number of people you could think of. 
And certainly, though a lot of us were there who didn't fit that white male tech mold, we weren't the dominant voices. And so I think that it got to a point where I said, you know, I'm just the people who say to quiet down when I talk about healthcare or talk about things that, you know, might be conceived as quote unquote women's ideas. I sort of said, you know, I don't really care what those people think anymore. (laughs) And we need to have these conversations. And, you know, one of my favorite things now is just that I think those conversations are happening a lot more. And I think a lot more of the folks who've come into the space say it's non-negotiable to talk about this. When you're a woman, you're told oftentimes that just speaking is political. Well, okay, then my whole life is. And so I even propose that we split up the movement, that we have those who just care about personal enrichment. That's great. That's fine. Do your thing. You guys go over here. And then over where I'll be is the side where we say, you know, we care about what our money does in the world. And we care about who is able to do the kinds of things we do. And so we care about creating more opportunity or at least removing barriers. And I think that that side of the movement is really growing a lot, which is really heartening to me and seeing, you know, that financial independence is in fact a force to take power away from large employers and put it in the hands of workers. And that's a really good thing. So yeah, that's, I think, to me, the biggest change that I've seen and the biggest change in thought process that I've had is we can't act like money exists with nothing else connected to it. It doesn't exist in a vacuum. It's connected to absolutely everything else in our lives and in society. And so it's great to be having that conversation. It's certainly interesting that the conversation has shifted away more from just the the numbers and the figures, because that's not too hard to figure out at the end of the day. And it's really broadened a lot more. And I, I have seen, it's quite a polarizing issue in the US, whereas I think in Australia, the financial independence sort of movement and communities a lot smaller. And so I think it's still in that very friendly stage. And so there, there isn't too much sort of fighting within areas. But I'd love to talk a little bit more about your new idea of wallet activism and sort of opening up that conversation, because there's a lot I want to cover there. So if you're able to explain a bit about what wallet activism is from a, a higher level, and then we can unpack it further. For sure. To me, wallet activism is its sort of the book that I wished existed because I wanted to read it. And it was the idea of like, okay, I am financially secure now. Now that I am, how can I be more intentional about how I spend my money? Should I think more intentionally about how I earn money, about where we live, about where I keep money in terms of investing and saving? And I, I looked around and really didn't feel like that guidance was out there. And I talked to lots of other folks and everybody sort of said the same thing, which is like, yeah, I, I feel like all the choices we have in front of us in our capitalist society are so complicated. I never know what to do, what the right thing is. And I started thinking, you know, all of this different stuff is connected. We'll talk about it in little bits in personal finance. You know, people like to talk about responsible investing, but rarely do we talk about responsible banking. Or we'll talk about shopping, you know, should you shop at a big box store or shop online instead of sort of questioning the whole concept of consumerism. And so wallet activism is the name that I attached to this concept of using every form of your financial power to express your values in the world and to push against the status quo where you believe it needs changing or to uphold things that are happening that you think are great to make sure that they can keep happening. But it's thinking more broadly than just how we shop or what we eat or where we invest. It's connecting all of these things together 
And to me, I think this is an equally important part is letting you decide what's important to you. So I give you the tools to figure out your values and then you can think about what those are and what that looks like for you rather than saying, here's a long checklist of all the stuff you have to do and you have to be perfect. It's instead saying, here are a whole bunch of tools, here are things to ask yourself and now you put these together however feels right for you. And I think it it ties in a lot with the ideas that are becoming quite popular in Australia are behind ethical investing and asking yourself about your values and you're sort of bringing it back to as a consumer as well and thinking about it. And what are some of the issues that we can target with our dollars when we're a consumer? Oh gosh, it's such a long list. It it warrants a lot of pages in the book. (laughs) I think it's really good with all of these choices to think first about the biggest areas of spending, investing, purchasing, earning, whatever it is. You know, if you start lamenting the one or $2 purchases, you're going to tie yourself up in knots. And I don't want anyone to feel overwhelmed and throw up their hands. So instead, it's looking at the big things of like, just as you would look at your budget to see where your money's going and what that means about what you're able to save or able to put toward your big goals, you can look at where your money's going and saying, okay, do I realize that I spent this much money on Amazon last year? Do I realize that I spent this much doing XYZ things? Um, That's going to look different for everybody. But I think once you come face to face with it, you can say, okay, then these are the big choices. Do I feel good about that? What are the questions I need to ask? And sometimes it's that the companies that you're doing business with have bad business practices that are harmful to the planet and the climate and to our fellow humans. Sometimes it might be that you're upholding a practice that you don't like seeing in the world, you know, irresponsible manufacturing or a lot of shipping. Transoceanic shipping is a huge uh, thing for carbon emissions. And I know that's something in Australia, you all have a lot that comes in on ships. And so is that something that you want to support the way that you do you know, thinking specifically about spending and shopping, those are really some of the big things. But there are a lot of different questions you might ask. It's learning to see through greenwashing when companies want to convince you that something is much more eco-friendly than it is. And frankly, a lot of it is questioning consumerism in the first place of this thing I feel like I need, learning to understand if you really need that or if that's just something that you've been conditioned to believe you need or you're trying to fulfill some kind of societal expectation. How do we let that go so that you truly can align your values to your spending and for lack of a better way to put it, like sleep sleep well at night, look at yourself in the mirror and feel good about who you are and what kind of energy both psychically and financially you're putting out into the world. And given the amount of information and different issues out there that we might want to support in a meaningful way with the way we spend our money, what are some strategies to become more informed uh, consumers in our society, given the the sheer volume of information and some of it's not always that factual or it has quite a strong bias that we see every day? Yeah. Oh, gosh. I think this is a bigger topic of almost like, how do we learn to root out misinformation? I think, first of all, I do want to give people permission to not have to be completely up on every topic. The book covers a lot of stuff and none of it is there to say, you have a lot of homework and now you have to keep up on which companies are responsible and what their manufacturing processes are and whether carbon offsets are a scam or not and whether recycling is happening. None of that is meant to put more on your plate. It's just to help you understand the broader context of some of your choices. But I think in terms of information, it is really good for everyone these days to learn to take a different lens on it and not just believe something because you saw a headline or you saw something on social media. It's clicking through 
to the story, understanding whether they used credible sources or not. And a lot of that just comes down to, did you read it on a credible news site? Do they cite research that seems to be peer-reviewed or other data or economic analysis? Or is it clearly motivated in some way? And so much of the disinformation that's out there, misinformation, it's pretty easy to sniff out if you're just willing to click once or twice and start to dig a little more. And so I think those are good critical thinking skills that we all just need to develop given how much stuff is coming at us every day that is just pure lies. And even companies that are greenwashing in a way and saying that they're doing wonderful things when really they have a pretty dodgy supply chain, they're paying really low wages. Have you got any sort of tips for spotting that or doing a little bit more research on maybe a clothes company you want to purchase clothes on to make sure they have practices that are in line with your values as well? Yeah, there are a lot of different things you can do. And there are some helpful laws that I think people don't necessarily know about because they're fairly local. So there's a law in France that requires supply chain transparency, which means that basically every company doing business in France has to share that stuff on their website. And likewise, there's a law in California, which is probably better for folks in Australia because we speak the same language. So it's a bit easier to Google this than something in French might be. But it's called the California Supply Chain Transparency Act. And if you Google that along with the name of the company that you want to shop, you'll get a lot of good information. And you'll see basically, it doesn't force supply chain transparency, but it forces the company to make a statement about their efforts to make the supply chain transparent. And you can tell very quickly who takes it seriously and who doesn't. You know, and so you'll see that let's take H&M or Zara, you know, that they don't have a whole lot posted on that stuff. And that gives you more information than a company that does have that stuff posted. And so that's a good step. It also, I think with greenwashing, if somebody claims to be putting something out that's eco-friendly, you can usually look at their website and get a pretty clear sense of whether they're actually committed to changing their core business practice or whether they've just released a new product. Like here in the US, we have, I'm sure you have plastic sandwich bags also that are disposable. We have these new ones from Glad that say they're 50% plant content. Like, okay, well, maybe that's a little better, but that's still a plastic sandwich bag. And granted, some people need those, you know, for folks who are very low income and have don't have the resources to have a whole bunch of beautiful reusable silicone sandwich bags or folks who have disabilities. It's not meant to shame anyone who needs them. But I think for a lot of folks, it's not a necessary convenience. And so looking to say, okay, is this thing they're selling me, is it necessary? Do I actually need it? Are they reshaping the rest of their business practices to live up to this? Or are they just doing the same old thing, but they put a green leaf on this product. And so therefore, we're meant to think it's better. Those are pretty easy questions to train yourself to start asking. And so really, a lot of this is just about building some new habits to start asking more of those questions. And then the finding out is actually pretty simple. Yeah, I know Australia has a few different standards. I'm not quite sure about the supply chain, but that's probably one that's quite easy to Google and find out. And a lot of these global chains that we have in Australia, they'll have statements in other countries as well. So just doing a bit of research as a consumer, really. And what about the impact that, because it often seems like there's so many big issues in the world and we only have so many dollars to support buying recycled shoes or things like that. And our dollars actually have much of an impact on these issues as an individual, or is it kind of like, unless a large amount of people make a change, nothing will actually happen? I think that is an incredibly common question, and it's really important to talk about this because I think 
we need to recognize that under capitalism, the big corporations who, frankly, run the world in many ways, they make a lot of the choices that we're all living with the consequences of. You didn't ever get to vote on whether ExxonMobil and Chevron and BP were out in the middle of the ocean drilling for oil. That was something that happened without our permission. But under that system, they don't want you to feel powerful. They want each of us to feel like our decisions don't add up to much, but they do. And it's certainly more impactful in some areas than others. So for example, if you bank with a big multinational bank, chances are good that the money sitting in your savings account is lent out by them to fund fossil fuel projects. That's regardless of the laws in Australia or the laws in other countries because they can move that money around in all kinds of different creative ways. So moving your money out of a big multinational bank is an incredibly powerful act. And we forget that if a company says, wow, we've lost 3% or 5% of our deposit customers in the last few months, they're going to pay attention to that. And they're going to want to know why. And that gives consumers leverage. And so it's not about all of us having to make a change to be powerful. It's okay, if we're stuck with capitalism and that's going to rule our lives, then let's use it to our advantage. Let's make companies pay the price a little bit, whether it's boycotting them and hurting their reputation, whether it's defunding their activities. And in plenty of cases, the right choice is policy action. So this isn't saying it's on us wholly as consumers to make these changes. Of course, we have to lean on our leaders. Of course, we need to demand action at the global scale, especially on climate. That has to be part of it. So it's not saying either or. It's saying We need both. But yes, you as a consumer are powerful. And sometimes that might be in small ways. But if you refuse to fund something bad that's happening in your community, that's a powerful act. So I think, remember, if you if you feel like you don't have power, remember who it is who wants you to feel that way. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Yeah, because it can, there are so many issues out there and it can feel a little overwhelming sometimes and almost to the point where you go, well, it's just, there's no point even trying. For sure. You're not alone in that thought. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And I know a lot of the ways that we can be more active as consumers, maybe it's going to your local market or buying recycled clothes. Sometimes these can actually, the upfront cost can be a lot more than the uh, alternative item at just H&M or Zara or Woolworths in Australia, our large supermarket chain. Can you still sort of make a difference if you have minimal financial means or you're just getting started or you're getting out of debt and you're wanting to spend as little as possible? I think that is such an important question because so many people feel like they can only engage in this activism if they have a big budget and can afford to purchase from prestige brands. But I put this in global terms in the book because I think it's really important to think about this. You know, the people who are primarily responsible for causing climate change as well as benefiting from exploitation of our fellow humans, most of those folks are the wealthy folks. And now granted, to be rich in a global sense doesn't actually require you to be rich in countries like ours. Someone who's earning 20 or 25,000 US dollars a year is certainly not rich by US standards, but they're in the top 10% of global earners. So I think putting it in that perspective of if you're lower income and you're generally buying less, you are contributing much less to these problems. And so I just want to give everyone that sense of reassurance. But I think within that, if you're shopping at the chain stores and that's your only option, the best thing you can do is just buy less if you're able, you know, buy fewer things that aren't necessary when you can 
by quality, if that's possible. There are other things you can do too. You know, we don't do enough sharing among ourselves, but maybe if you need an outfit for a one-time event, you don't need to go buy that at H&M or Zara. You can borrow that from a friend or neighbor. That's something we've sort of forgotten culturally how to do, but it's really powerful. Same if you need a power tool to do a home improvement project. You don't need to buy that tool. You can rent it. You could borrow it. Um, Maybe all of the people in your neighborhood own some tools together. And so all of those things are very budget-friendly, as is shopping secondhand, supporting thrift stores, things like that. And so I think just questioning the whole consumerist frame, I think so often when we have this conversation, it's we take it as an inevitability that, of course, we all have to buy a bajillion things. And we don't. Even those of us who don't have extra money to spend still end up buying things where we a few weeks later go, why did I buy that? You know, that was a waste. And thinking about that stuff both as bad for your own finances and potentially harmful to the planet or other people I think it's just a good practice to get yourself in so that you start to think about that more before you make the purchase. But certainly, every time you say no to a purchase, that is money you get to hang on to. And that's a good thing for you too. Mm. It's certainly interesting that I don't know if it was probably like this before all the lockdowns where we definitely were not encouraged to share things, especially over the last two years, but losing that sense of community where we, we didn't have to go, oh, I need my own individual printer and I need my own individual of these 101 items, whereas maybe approaching it in a different way and going, well, I don't actually need my own individual one of every single one of these items when I don't use them every day. Maybe I can share with my community. I mean, I'd love to see that sense of community coming back after COVID especially. Yeah, maybe depending on the setting, you need to wipe things down a little bit before you're passing them around. But I think the COVID time has given us all an appreciation of what we're missing. And so I do think we call, at least in the States, we call Uber and Lyft and Airbnb, we call that the sharing economy. But what I think we need is really a real sharing economy among individuals and not among tech companies who are exploiting their workers. (laughs) <laughs> mm. Yeah, there's no reason you can't create your own local sharing economy. You don't need to support an American organization for everything. Yes. <laughs> I give you permission. I speak for America. You don't have to support those guys. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Like sharing sharing cars locally. I mean, I guess it's, I don't know, it's probably just that mindset that we've been brought up with that you have to have your own of everything. Unless we take time to really rethink that, we don't. Yeah, that's really right. The things that you use every day, you probably do benefit from having them. That certainly improves your quality of life. But for everything else, you know, we've got a garage full of tools that we don't use most of the year. And the only reason we have them is because we didn't think of sharing them when we bought that stuff. And so we're trying to bring that mindset to our purchases moving forward. What are some powerful strategies that you have experienced firsthand where you're your money that you've either saved, spent, or invest in a particular way has really had a meaningful impact on pressing issues that we're facing in the world. Yeah, I know since since you do talk about financial independence and investing, you know, I can think most of all about an, an investing example, which is that I'm sure folks know if you buy an index fund, for example, which is a very popular way to invest in the US fire movement, you're buying a whole lot of stocks without really thinking about what's in that index fund. And that usually includes fossil fuels. In the US, it includes, you know, the makers of the assault rifles that people 
use in school shootings and, you know, horrible stuff that most of us, when we think about it, would not want to support. And so there has been a growing movement to create index funds that are also what's called ESG for environment, social, and governance that are supposed to be funds that are a little bit better for humanity and the planet. And we noticed that Vanguard, our investment bank, wasn't offering anything like that. And there were multiple attempts made to ask them, you know, hey, why can't we have things like this? And they said, oh, we just, we leave personal politics out of this and we just try to create the most boring investment products possible. And I said, well, that's not a good enough answer. And so I started a petition and I got the support of change.com and we got almost 100,000 rather (laughs) signatures on the petition. And I sent it to Vanguard along with a reminder of how much my husband and I have invested with them. (laughs) Because, you know, if you do, if you have an area of your life where you have some privilege, it's great to be able to use that for good. And so in this instance, I was able to use that as, hey, you should listen to me because we're good customers of yours. And I can't take credit for this because, in fact, know what their internal processes were for making this decision. But a couple months later, they announced new ESG index funds. And I'm sure that I wasn't the only one speaking up and asking for that. I'm sure that there was a lot of demand. But those of us who spoke up were able to change their minds and to get them to offer new products. Now, ESG isn't perfect. You still have to research what's in the fund. There are some ESG funds in the EU, for example, that include oil companies, because those oil companies happen to be very transparent and treat their workers really well, but they're still pumping fossil fuels out of the ground. So you still have to do a little homework, but certainly ESG funds are better than non-ESG funds by and large. And so, yeah, that was just, to me, such a powerful example of a few people who felt strongly making a big difference. And I think we should all strive to do more of that. Yeah. And I think even in Australia, the large ETF providers like Vanguard and BetaShares have actually heard consumers because there are more and more of those type of products and some that are even more active in ethical issues than just a simple a screen that some of the Vanguard ones do. And I, I think it's a really good thing because there's more and more choice and these companies are actually listening to consumers that have the money to spend. For sure. And I think people think, well, you must have to have millions of dollars invested or something to make a difference. But there was recently an example of both ExxonMobil and Chevron with shareholder activism where people bought just a few shares, just the minimum to have to or to get invited to the shareholder meeting and then went and had basically a revolution and disagreed with the CEO in one case and in the other case installed more pro-clean energy people on their board. And those were folks who weren't didn't own millions of shares. They owned a few shares, um, but they were able to make a compelling argument and get in front of the right people. And it's forcing the fossil fuel giants to change. And that's, I mean, that's been incredibly hard. Folks have been trying that forever. And to see that it's the shareholder activism that's actually making a difference, to me, that's very powerful. Mm, And there have been a few examples of that in Australia recently as well um, on some different companies. And so I think sometimes people don't realise as a shareholder of the company that they actually have some rights and responsibilities and they have a voice and it doesn't have to be a passive investment. Even if it is a, a passive investment, you can still use your voice to actively influence it. Yeah, well said. Wonderful. Well, i One of the other ideas I wanted to talk about, which is a little bit about the consumerism movement, the financial independence, um, is the idea of enough and working out when you have enough money, when you have enough things, when you have enough everything in your life. And I'd love to hear some of your thoughts around that. 
Yeah, I have to give credit here to the American author, Vicki Robin, who wrote Your Money or Your Life. I'm sure some folks are familiar with that. And she has a podcast that hosts different big thinkers on it. And on there, she had the novelist Kim Stanley Robinson. And they were talking about her book. And she said, well, you know, I still teach people how to be good capitalists fundamentally. And he said, no, no, I don't think you do. By teaching them to strive for enough and then to stop accumulating, that's actually very anti-capitalist because you're not continuing to strive to have more, more, more all the time or to be able to buy an endless amount. You're leaving more resources for others. And that's fundamentally a much more collectivist idea. And I just found that conversation so powerful the way he had put it. So I had already written that portion of the book, but it just helped me kind of put into words a bit better that, yes, if you can figure out what is a comfortable but not extravagant life like for me? How much do I need to save to achieve that? Save and invest, of course. What does that look like in terms of then what kind of time I can commit to engaging in service projects or to working toward causes that I care about? All of that then takes you out of the equation of people striving to grab that money. And that leaves more to go to others. And that's fundamentally a really positive thing. You know, if more of us had that attitude of what is enough and can I stop when I get there, I think we would have a lot more resources to go around. Mm. And I know that's a an issue in Australia right now. We have crazy high housing costs and, and house, costs of housing. And so there's a lot of people saying, well, is it ethical to have three, four, five investment properties? Like, have you passed the point where it is enough and you've just kind of gone overboard? And I It's an interesting idea to think about because I don't think society gets us to examine that at all. And yeah, I think even just planning, if people are listening to this podcast and getting started with their finances, it's it's much easier to make a plan and set goals when you have an endpoint and you can kind of stop there. Otherwise, it's just an endless lifetime of accumulation for possibly no point at all. Absolutely. And all of those investment properties and short-term rentals can have a big impact on raising the housing prices because they shrink the available number of properties for people to rent as a home. We have that problem here. I live in Lake Tahoe, which is a resort area. And here we've had a lot of folks turn their apartments that they used to rent out into Airbnbs. Mm -hmm. And so we have many, many fewer places for folks to rent. We have a terrible housing shortage. The apartments that are available or rental houses uh, are much more expensive. And so it's not just about, in that case, do you need to accumulate that much, but also what are the knock-on effects that might be happening from taking that approach that surely those folks didn't intend. No one rents their their property out to Airbnb or through Airbnb thinking, well, yes, I can't wait to make housing more expensive. But we are so often not trained, as you said, to think about this stuff. And it's important that we start shifting our mindset unless we just want to see inequality continue to skyrocket and affordability continue to exceed crisis levels. To me, that's not sustainable. And I I know a lot of folks agree. So it's what are the right questions to train ourselves to ask so that we don't contribute to that unknowingly. Mm, And that probably circles back to that idea of spending and saving and investing in a meaningful way of not just thinking of what is the impact right now, but what is the flow on effect of how I'm using my money and how will that impact my community and the world I want to see over time. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. Are there any final ideas from wallet activism that you'd love to share with my listeners before we wrap up this conversation? Um, Gosh, I'm just, I'm grateful to you for 
asking me to be here and for being willing to have this conversation. It's always hard for me to kind of sum up what's in the book because I tried to be as expansive and broad in it as possible. But what I really want to leave folks with is, again, just this idea. It's never about achieving perfection or being, quote unquote, the most woke or any of that (laughs) stuff. It's saying, you know, how can we examine some of our choices and not so that we feel bad or feel guilty. It's not about shame, but to say, wow, what are the things that I've been doing without thinking about it that have these other effects that harm people or harm the planet? Where can I reclaim some of that power from corporations that rule the world? Where is it necessary to speak up on a policy level? But to do that in a way that speaks to the issues that are close to your heart and the things that you care most about. And I just want you to know that regardless of your income level, regardless of what those issues are for you, there are things you can do and that you are powerful. To me, that's the piece that we're really brainwashed into disbelieving more than anything else. So I just, I want folks to know that they are powerful. I love that idea. And I think it's a perfect place to end today's episode. And I hope it empowers people to know that they do have some control over some of these issues and they can have a meaningful impact, whether that's through the way they spend, save or invest their money. If listeners want to learn more about you, read your blog, check out your podcast, grab a copy of the book when it comes out, where should they go? The main place to find me is my blog, OurNextLife.com. I don't post there super regularly these days, but you can read about 400 posts from the past. I'm most active on Twitter and Instagram, and that's at Our underscore Next Life. And those are the main places. In terms of the book, uh, I'm not sure where it's going to be for sale in Australia, but I know that it will be. So hopefully it'll be relatively easy to find, but Google is your friend on that. Wonderful. Well, definitely figure out where it's going to be and I'll make sure I include links to that in the show notes for listeners as well so they can grab a copy when it's out. Great. Wonderful. Well, Tanya, thank you so much for joining me on the How To Money podcast today. Thank you. You had really great questions. This was super fun. No worries. Great to chat. Thank you for listening to this episode of the How To Money podcast. If you enjoyed this, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts and send any questions our way via www.howtomoney.online. You can also catch us on Twitter and Instagram at howtomoneyaus, and we'd love to hear from you. You've been listening to the How To Money Podcast.